last lot are still keen to kind of suck everything you can out of the NLC experience. So well done, very good. Now my name's John, and uh, this seminar is called the first. The first draft is the worst. Worst draft, and um, semi-inspired by a little situation that happened uh, a, a little while ago, where uh, a friend of mine who has quite recently started preaching here. I work here at this church, Trent. Um, they've started preaching here on a Sunday, and they were, they were preparing one of their first talks. Um, and part of my role is that I have a sort of a, um, a responsibility for helping, training, and equipping some of the people that are the preaching team, really. And so, in light of that, he was asking me this question. He said, um, "Mate, when you're writing a talk, is it normal to kind of get to this point where, in the process, where you just feel like it's just not coming together, like it's just a disaster, like?" <laughs> A state of, of despair. And I sort of hesitated for a moment to consider responding. And then my wife, Abby, um, who, um, who doesn't preach here, but she does live with me, <laughs> just immediately answered on my behalf. She's like, yes, every single time. And I thought about it, I was like, does it? And then I thought, yeah, she's probably, she's probably right. And, um, and I think, if, I, if I'm honest, if like for me, a typical preaching preparation process, if I was trying to represent it graphically, would look something like this, where if this is my sort of like um, scale of emotional well-being, <laughs> and this is time, okay, so you've got like Sunday here, then you've maybe got another Sunday here, and then another Sunday here. You know, I'm starting out at perhaps um, a base level, okay, here, and then, and then what happens is there'll be a point around about a couple of weeks out where I'll look at my diary and see that I've got uh, a sermon coming up here. And so something like this happens at that point. <laughs> and, then, and then what happens is I sort of like, I, you know, I start, I start to pray about it and I, you know, think what you're saying, God, and, and I start to think about what, what I might, you know, be called to sort of speak about on that Sunday. And so, and so this will sort of happen. I'll sort of feel a little bit better about it. And then I'll kind of plateau because I'll get distracted by the fact that I've got other stuff to do. And so that will happen for a few days. And then something, I'll, I'll realise it's happening again and I'll, and I'll sort of have this. And then I'll set aside maybe half a day or a day to, to work on this talk. And during that day, sort of something like this happens where I, I'm, you know, I'm feeling like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Yes, yes, yes. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. And, um, but overall, I kind of get something down. Um, but it's at that point usually where... I sit down with a couple of friends at the start of this week and we go through, through something that at this point is the title of this, this seminar, the first draft, and it invariably is the worst draft and it feels in a really bad way. And, uh, and then usually what happens is that through a bit of work and effort and some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this seminar, it sort of gradually gets back up to here again where you begin to feel okay about it and hopefully by the time you get to Sunday, it's in, it's in a good place. But I think, I don't know if that sort of pattern... You never, you never get above the line. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, maybe sometimes, you know, maybe up here, I don't know. I don't, we'll just leave that open-ended for now. But um, I don't know if any of that, if, if, you, if you sort of resonate or connect with that sort of journey on any level. But I think there is something about preaching that is a bit of a roller coaster, and, it, and there are points in the journey where sometimes we can feel a bit stuck and a bit stressed about it. It can be, it's intense. And it can be quite isolating because it's kind of like a, a one-person job in the main. And I think sometimes we can get stuck in this sort of pit in a place where we can't necessarily see our blind spots and we can't see the wood for the trees. Um, and um, in, 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 in um, the Colossians, Paul, um, in chapter 1, there's a, there's a little passage that we're going to refer to a few times in this where Paul says this. It, it's, it's entitled in my Bible, Paul's Labour for the Church. So it's not specifically about preaching, but in it he talks about this thing that he feels he's called to, to make the word of God fully known, which I guess pe preaching is part of that. And he says, now, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And this is verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, I suspect that for all of us, it's probably not reasonable for us to say we can we can empathise with, with with Paul's struggle, and um, because obviously Paul faced enormous struggles and persecution. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was tortured, all in in in, in the pursuit of this goal of making God fully known. Um, and for us nowadays in two thousand and and 19, for us, sort of persecution when we're preaching, it's more like a snotty email on the Monday. <laughs> and um, hardship is more like when we're trying to find a place to prepare and we can't find someone with stable broadband and a good flat white. But I think the reality is that I would have loved to have you know, done this seminar and entitled it Six Steps to Taking All the Stress Out of Preaching. But the reality is it, that's not realistic because it's not a straightforward thing. There is a burden, there is a gravity to preaching, and I think we, we, we pick up a sense of it in that, in, that, in that chapter, in those few verses from Colossians. And I uh, just want to sort of, that's, those, are the, those are the scriptures, just want to land on that for a moment, just to emphasise why it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward because um, the Bible is, is, a, is not a straightforward thing. Um, in, in Hebrews, I'm sure many of us will be familiar with that verse, it says that you know, the word of God is living and it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces um, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and, and the intentions of the heart. So this book is, is it's, it's sharper than, it's the sharpest blade in the universe. And so we shouldn't expect to be able to use it without a, a degree of care and a degree of um, consideration. If you think about a, a surgeon with his, with his scalpel, every single incision that he makes, or she makes, is the outcome and the product of, of a great deal of training and expertise and preparation and thought and consideration. And every single incision that, you know, is, that is made needs to be made in the right place. If it's, if it's in the wrong place, the outcome and the consequences are, are, are high. And conversely, if it's placed in the right um, there are good, good consequences. So it's not straightforward. It's not um, trivial. It's, I don't know if you can read that. It's not a trivial thing. That verse that we love when we're down here, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Nothing to make you feel encouraged when you're down there. But it's not a trivial thing. Um, similarly, in 1 Peter, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, I think that's quite inspiring. Uh, um, one commentary that I read about that verse says it doesn't you know, literally mean that when we preach and we speak we become God's mouthpiece and we're sort of spouting dogma. But it rather says we speak with a seriousness of purpose which one would use if one, was, if one were using God's words or speaking God's words. So, so preaching is not straightforward, it's not trivial, it matters and it's not inconsequential. We need to remember when we're in here that part of the reason that we find this roller coaster ride is because we live in the midst of a of a very real war and conflict that's going on in the spiritual realm. And when we preach, we take ourselves to to the front line of that. We're doing something that is it's not passive, it's it's offensive to the enemy. And so we will probably expect to have some kind of opposition. Ephesians chapter six, verse twelve says for we don't wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so essentially I just wanted to flesh that out a bit, this idea that actually preaching and teaching, it sometimes does feel quite challenging and burdensome, and I think that's just part of it. That gravity is, I suspect, a a valid and a necessary part of the process. So I'm not gonna try and offer you steps to make it stress-free, but what I do wanna do in this seminar, in the time that we have, 
is present some thoughts, really in the form of some questions that, that we can use to, to navigate through this process. And so um, here's the first question. Oh, it's really unfortunate you can't read this, can you? First question, if we turn these lights off, I think it'll become too dark. Um, but we could, do you want to try, let's just try and see how bad it is. If we, the far left switch, the far left one, try that one. Oh. Is that doable? That's, that's going to be better, isn't it? So first question, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? You might find yourself asking that question when you're down here. Um, I think that one of the reasons why sometimes we can get a bit stuck in this place is because we lose sight of why we're doing what we're actually doing. I think, you know, because of the nature of preaching, sometimes we can be distracted by alternative why. We can see, you know, like, oh man, I've got to, I really need to make sure that I please certain people in the congregation. I really need to make sure that the people sort of see that I know my stuff. I really <coughs> need to sort of like be as good as the person who spoke last week or, or as good as the person who's gonna be speaking next week. There's a pressure to, to entertain, there's a, a pressure to come up with something new or novel, maybe. And, um, and, and essentially, what if, if we sort of get into those kind of mindsets, we begin to see the purpose of preaching as basically an exam, as though we, we, we're in the mindset that we would be if we were preparing for a test. And we're, and, we're, and we're basically looking to the Sunday and asking ourselves the question, am I going to pass or am I going to fail this test, which is really all about me? And that, of course, is not the purpose. Um, we do this thing here um, at, at Trent where about once every six weeks we gather together the, the preaching team um, here and we do this thing called imaginatively entitled Preaching Club. And the first rule of Preaching Club is uh, you do not talk about Preaching Club. <laughs> but we, we gather together, we do some preaching training and sort of one of the things that we do about two or three times a year or three or four times a year is we invite somebody maybe via Skype, uh, somebody who we really think, oh, they're great, they're a great preacher, they're a great teacher, and we get them to do some input and some training with us, and it's, we get some brilliant people to do that, and it's great. But the thing that really strikes me about it is that whenever, whenever <coughs> I've heard people who I really admire speaking about preaching, they seem to have this clarity around a sense of purpose in it. They, they, they believe it's important, and also they personally feel... a a sort of a tangible sense of calling to it. They understand why they have to do it. And they see it not as a test that, they, that they're gonna pass or fail, they see it as a, yes, a challenge, and yes, sometimes a struggle, but they see it as an opportunity and something that God is inviting them to do for him, um, to make an impact. They see it as a crucial and a critical part of God's plan to glorify his name, save the world, preach the gospel, establish his kingdom. And so it becomes an opportunity to take, to get on the offensive and take some ground. And Paul, you know, back in this um, Colossians passage, see, he was cr crystal clear about his about his why. Down here at the bottom, look, for this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And earlier on, he said, he, he explained, this is, the, you know, I rejoice in all these sufferings, and I do them to make the word of God fully known. So Paul was, he was crystal clear about his why. And I think that's really important that we, that we, that we recalibrate against this. There's a really helpful thing that you might have heard of by this guy, um, Simon Sinek. I don't know whether you've come across him. He looks a bit like, let's find him, this guy. He, he wrote this book, a secular book, called um, Start With Why. And um, basically the principle of it is that he, he says, um, He's got, he's got this, this thing that he calls the, the golden circle. And um, he's got these concentric circles, why, how, and what. And he says that great leaders and people who really, really influence, when they're, when they're casting vision, they, they start with why. And, and I think we, and, and then having done that, they, they then they sort of establish how, and finally talk about what. And people who are perhaps less effective, sometimes they start with the what, and it's the, the why, the what, they never really even get to the why. So, but we saw a really good example of this being done well with Susie and Zeke yesterday, where they started by talking about, okay, this is the situation with young people at the moment. This is why we've really got to do something. And this is why, 
the reason that we've got to do something is because we have the answer. And they, they got to this point first. And then they talked about how. They're like, so what we do is we've been doing <coughs> this thing called DTI. And kids' lives have been, teenagers' lives have been changed by it, but by this and this and this and this, this. And so what we're going to do now is this is the vision for the future. We're going to need a shed load of money and we're going to need a shed load of volunteers. And they finally got to the what. But by the time they did, we were all on board, weren't we? Because we bought into the why. And so it was that sort of, uh, this guy Simon Sinek, he suggested that's a, a sort of a really effective way of communicating. And I think in preaching, I think this is perhaps a helpful principle, that we start with that idea of why, that we establish what our intent is <coughs> before we touch our content. In intent before content. Okay, so start with why. And so that's the question that I, if you find yourself in this pit, that's the first question I'll ask you, is like, have you come to terms with your why? Have you reminded yourself why you're doing this? What is the point that you're trying to get across? Um, another really good example of this was um, um, one of those people who did some training with us was um, Andy Croft from Soul Survivor. And he said that once something that Mike Pilavacci said to him many, many times over the years is, is all about the idea of why. He said, a lot of people when they're preaching, they make a couple of mistakes. The first mistake people often make is they think that preaching is all about imparting information. And he said that the second thing that people often do with preaching a mistake is that they think that preaching is all about application. And he said that preaching is about those things. It's about, it, it, part of it is information, part of it is about application, but the purpose is revelation. It's about, it's about drawing back the curtain and revealing to people what God is saying in his word. And that's the kind of why that can really recalibrate our talks. Um, I, I had a, a moment that, of where I encountered that, probably, it was probably a couple of years ago, but we were here, not in this room, but in another room down the corridor, and we're doing a, um, a, a little Bible study after an alpha group. And there was three or four people in this little group. And um, in my group, it was three Chinese people. And it centered around one guy who it was his, I think it was actually his first or second time in a church building ever. And he didn't know, he never held a Bible, he didn't know anything about Christianity really. Um, but we were doing this Bible study going through the story of the prodigal son. And, um, and uh, it was really painful and painstaking because we were really slowly translating it backwards and forwards because he couldn't speak any English. And I was thinking, man, this is just not really working. And, um, and there was this point, though, in the conversation where he then, he, he, just, he just said something that didn't require any interpretation. He just went, oh, like that. And I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> like, and and we, we translated it back and forth and, and realized that he had just seen that the father loved both of the sons, not because of what they'd done, but because of who they were. And he'd seen that for the first time, and, it, and you, you saw it, you're just like, oh. And it was a moment of, of revelation. And that, I think, is the essence of, 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 of why. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve that moment where people see, oh, that's what you're saying to me, God. That's what you're saying. So start with why. Um, next thing, next question, am I in step with God? Um, a few... Um, about 18 months ago, um, Carl Tuttle, who, um, if you don't know who he was, he was um, one of the real central figures at the birth of the vineyard. He was there at the very, very start, and he was mentored by John Wimber as a, as a sort of a teenager. And uh, he, he visited, and he was telling us some stories about those sort of early vineyard days. And he said this story where, he told this story, he said, um, he was at like a, a church meeting, really packed, probably a bit like NLC, and the worship band are playing, and just as the worship bands are sort of finishing, John Wimber just turned to Carl and said, oh, by the way, God's just spoken, you're preaching yeah. tonight. And um, Carl's, you know, sort of said, what, you know, I've got, what do you expect me to say? I haven't pre prepared anything. And John's response was, you feed them off your own plate. You just feed them off your own plate. And, 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 and the sort of the, the implicit assumption in there is that if you are, you know, one who one who is in a position of leadership, one who is sort of stepping into that place, should have a relationship with God where at any given point, you know, God should, they, they should be engaged with the scriptures, they should be talking to God, they should be hearing from him such that 
they've got something to say. It may not be a three-point sermon with, you know, um, alliteration and all the rest of it and perfect, you know, all of that. But there should be something inside of us because if we're in step with God, we'll have we'll, we'll be feeding ourselves enough to have surplus for others. We should be able to feed them off our own plate. Does that make that make sense? I mean, I'm, I'm petrified. I was like, well, how did? You? And he said, after that, we used to carry around notes in our pocket. Uh. <laughs> <Just in case. laughs> but I like I like the idea of um, feeding feeding off, off off your own plate. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that um, it, it, that I find that challenging. Um, and sometimes I think when I when I when I'm in this place of kind of like ah the sermon's not to get together I, I think actually this, the question is am I am I in step with God and, and I, some, I sometimes I think the answer is no I'm, I'm not that's the, what I need to do put down my pen put down close my laptop go for a walk I need to pray I need to listen um, I need to spend some time with God and get in step with Him that's the priority and. Um, a, a, a while ago, um, somebody organised for um, Simon Ponsonby to have a look at a couple of my talks and give me some feedback on, on, on them. And, and he kind of honed in on, on, on this as a thing for me, which I found really helpful. He said, you know, I, I think, I, he sort of spotted that maybe I, I wasn't necessarily as in, in touch with the Bible as I needed to be in order to get onto a platform and preach the Bible. And he was like, if you want to feed others, you need to feed. You need to feed to feed. You need to feed to feed. I found that really helpful. So, if you find yourself in that place, I realise that if you're about, if your sermon is about two days away, and you and you're like, oh man, I'm just not in step with God at the moment. I realise that is a bit of a predicament. Um, and I'd say the two things that I'd say if you find yourself in that situation is, one, from from experience, I'd say, God is gracious. You know, if you put your close your laptop and go, okay, God, I'm stuck. I realise we've not been spending much time together recently. What we're going to do? He he wants his word to be proclaimed well, and he loves you. So he's he's invariably very very gracious about that. So that's one thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is learn from that experience and, and don't allow yourself to get into that place again. Because actually, being in step with God is is the priority anyway. That's the first priority for us to have a strong relationship with Him. So that's the second one. The third one. Um, I won't spend so, so much time on this one. Um, am I saying what he is saying? Um, I think a classic um, mistake that, that we can make, and probably anyone who's prepared a few sermons has probably done this at some point, is as we're writing a talk, we, we have an idea about what we want to say, <coughs> and we think of a really good story or a really good illustration that will go down really well. And so we, we, we put that in there. And then, because we're responsible Christians, um, we say, oh, hang about, is God actually saying what I'm saying? And so we get on Google and we type in, you know, Bible verses about uh, faith and risk or, you know, or something like that. And we, and we just try and find a few Bible verses somehow or maybe look in a commentary or something. And we try and find a few Bible verses that we can use to sort of scatter through our thoughts. Um, and what we're really effectively asking God to do is sort of endorse and, and, and rubber stamp our natural wisdom. Um, and, and, and what we, what we've, there's a subtle difference, but what we've done is we've, we've asked the question, is God saying what I'm saying? Whereas the question that we should really be asking is, but am I saying what God is saying? A am I going to him first for my foundation and my inspiration? Jesus said, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And obviously that's not about preaching, but can you see there is a sequence there of hearing the word and then building from it as a foundation. And so I think it's really important to, to, to say what he's saying. And I think this, really this is about sort of, um, you know, that idea of hermeneutics, of taking the Bible and trying to unpack what does it actually say? Asking questions like, what did it mean when it was written then and there? And what does it mean here and now? And um, I think nowadays, you know, there are some really helpful tools um, that, that make that job a lot easier. You know, you don't have to have a degree in theology to do a decent job with that, but you do have to set aside the time to do it. And so if that's something where you feel perhaps less equipped, I'd really recommend um, on, on um, Vineyard's um, the training platform, there's a really good module on hermeneutics on there, and it's really affordable, and you can just get that and, and, and follow that through. 
I'd really recommend, if you're really beginning with this, I'd recommend a book called um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Really short. And just, if, if you've got that on lockdown, then that, that'll, be, that'll be a good start for 10. But it's really important to go through that process of going, am I actually saying what he was first saying? And um, I know that sounds quite sort of logical, um, but sometimes that is a bit of a wrestle to, to, to kind of get to that place. So in practice, a little example of that for me was the last talk I did was um, over Christmas I had, I had this sense that a, a prophetic word really, I felt like God was saying inside out, inside out, inside out. And I was, and I was sort of, I felt like, oh, God wants me to talk about this idea of inside out. But I didn't know what that really meant. And, and it kind of, it, I wrote down a load of thoughts about it, a, a few thousand words and some ideas of maybe what it meant and chucked a few Bible verses in there. And I found myself in this, in this place where I was like, this is not a sermon. It doesn't really have any kind of like um, power. And, um, and it was like the, this prophetic word inside out was kind of, um, it, was, it wasn't going away, but it was a bit like, you know if you um, bang on a bell, but you're holding on to the bell, and it's like tick, 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 and you can hear a noise, but it's not really ringing and resonating. Anyway, eventually I found myself in just bedding down in Psalm 51, which is all about repentance when David had an affair with Bathsheba. And in that psalm, that prophetic word just sort of like, it found its foundation. And I kind of saw, oh, God, I felt like God was showing me that in that psalm, you see that um, all these different parts of our, of our journey with God, um, sin, um, that's not part of our journey with God, but the act of sin, the act of repentance, the act of restoration and healing, all of those things flow from the inside out. And you see it in that psalm. And it was like that bell was then suddenly released to just go ding, do you know, do you know what I mean? And the, and the prophetic word suddenly had a sense of weight to it that it didn't have without that foundation. And the sermon just really came together. But I probably spent about 80% of the time getting to that point. Um, and then 20% of the time writing the talk. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily a good model, but the point that I'm making is that there is an investment of time and energy in kind of establishing, am I saying what the Bible is actually saying? So that's, the, that's my Next point, um, is it simple enough? Um, uh, Paul said uh, in Corinthians, when I came to you brothers, um, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, of course, we read about the fact that he was an educated guy. He had lots to say. He knew a lot of stuff, but he, but he chose to make it simple because because he, he understood something that perhaps people didn't necessarily understand at the time, was that this, this mystery that he talked about in Colossians, this mystery of faith that had puzzled people for ages, people had now been, the, the, the sort of solution to that mystery had now been re revealed in the person of Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And he, he realised that, you know, maybe he was the first person in the world to, to really sort of get this and learn how to just take it and preach it around the whole world, um, that, that, that it really is as simple as that, that it is about Christ um, at the centre of it all. And um, I think simplicity, therefore, is really important when we're, when we're preaching, um, because the Bible doesn't really, you know, we, we would love in our sort of flesh to, to always have something that's new and novel and exciting to say, um, but actually the Bible doesn't really permit us to make it any more simpler than like it really is all about Jesus. Um, and so um, I love the, um, there's a book that Tim Keller wrote about preaching, which again, I'd, I'd super duper recommend. It's, I think it's called Preaching. And um, there's a whole section in that about just preaching Christ in your sermons. And I think it's very, very helpful. But um, simplicity for effective communication is key. If you've got something that, that God has spoken to you about, and it's really, really profound, the bottom line is that it, 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 it kind of, if it's not simple enough for people to kind of get their head around, then it's basically impotent. It doesn't really actually connect and land. So it needs to be simple. Um, Andy Stanley, um, who's, a, who's a really clear communicator, um, he said, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there'll be a fog in the pews. <laughs> and it's, I think it's true. I think um, there's a bit of a stigma that simple perhaps means lightweight. I don't think it does at all. I think some of the most simple talks are often the most profound. 
certainly some of the things that Jesus said in just a few words have quite a bit of weight to them, don't they? And um, and, and again, I think of um, Mike Pilavachi around this simplicity <coughs> thing. Like he's, um, who hears, I'm guessing, lots of people here heard talks from Mike Pilavachi. Who's, yeah, 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 loads of us have, I know, yeah. And he, so if you've ever been to Soul Survivor, he's got these talks, like there's the one about the cake, um, where there's this cake illustration. There's one that he tells about, how, about having food poisoning mm. when he ate fish and chips. And there's another one that he tells this story about um, a dance at a Jewish wedding. And they're very, very simple sort of stories, um, but they're actually, they embedded within them, they encapsulate some really profound theology. So the cake one is about like flesh and, 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 the lu- and lust. And um, the one about um, getting food poisoning and, and fish and chips is about the now and the not yet. Um, and it, you know, it sort of talks about some really profoundly complicated things. And the, and the one about, the, he's got this one that's about a, a dance at a Jewish wedding, and it's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. And you can't get more sort of complicated than the Trinity, can you? But he, what, he, what he does is he manages to, 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 to make complex theology simple. And what we, I think, if we're looking to be effective preachers, need to understand and really embrace is that that requires effort. That, isn't, that, isn't just, that doesn't just come together overnight. It requires a lot of effort. Um, it, it reminds me of um, a few years ago, our small group, sent um, my wife Abby and I to go to a posh restaurant in town. And it was the first time we'd ever been to like a posh restaurant. We've probably been to one twice, but we went to this really posh restaurant. And the thing that struck me about it was the gravy, which wasn't even called gravy, it was called like jus or something like that. <laughs> and, um, and I found out afterwards that those, you know, like you get this tiny little bit of sauce and it's so flavoursome. Have you ever had that kind of thing? And um, of course, to make that requires quite a lot of effort. You have to take all the juices and then you have to you know, add in all these different ingredients and things. And then over a period of time, you can't rush it. You have to gradually simmer it and just boil off all the excess water. And the thing gets more concentrated and rich. And of course, it's absolutely amazing. And it takes more effort to make 100 milliliters of that jus than it does to make like five gallons of Bisto. <laughs> but of course, that's so much better. And I remember that. I've since had Bisto hundreds of times, and I don't remember any of those times, but I remember that moment. And I think sometimes the reason that we, that we end up here is because we've basically mixed up 500 gallons of Bisto. That's what we've done. We've got all the notes, we've read every commentary, everything, but we haven't boiled it down. And so we've got illustrations in there that don't really drive at the point, but we like them because they're funny, or we've got stories in there that are the same, or we've got little bits of Greek and Hebrew that, again, are very clever, but they don't actually drive at what we're trying to say. And so it's this painful process that requires effort and time of boiling it down and going, actually, I need to make this as simple as I can to, to fit within the time, if nothing else, something that I'm failing to do right now. So simple. Oh, I've got some bonus questions to foster simplicity, because I think this is, a, this is probably, out of all this, this is the thing that I really feel is most important. First question, bonus question, how, how would I explain it to a child? How would I explain it to a child? If you're in here and you're like, this talk is not coming together, spend 20 minutes going, how would I explain this to a child? And then put that at the top of your talk and put everything through that filter. Um, second question, could I summarise the structure um, in, in, in 30 seconds? I think um, structure doesn't necessarily sound like the most glamorous thing, but structure is an extremely po- important part of writing a talk, I believe, and I think it really does foster... Um, simplicity and clarity. Going back to this thing here, um, do you remember I said we start with intent and eventually we get to content. The thing that links those two together, the how, is the structure. Okay? And I know this is cheesy, but I was like, what have intent and content got in common? Tent, which is an example of a structure. (laughs) So, um, no. But <laughs> just me on that one. But um, structure is, is structure is more than just giving the PowerPoint people something to do. It's more than just um, you know giving people a game to play where they're trying to guess what the next thing that's beginning with P is. Structure is a way that enables your your intent to be expressed in your content. It's the thing that enables your content to actually sort of focus in on the, on, on the purpose of what you're trying to, say, trying to say, and I think it's absolutely critical. So just to share what I, would, what I tend to do is that 
um, maybe at this point, maybe about a, sort of like a, um, just over a week out before a talk, so I've got a talk on a Sunday, maybe the Friday, um, eight days before, I'll try and get the structure sorted in my head. Um, and again, that can be quite a, a sort of a time-consuming thing to do. I'll often be like walking up and down the corridors here. There's a guy who um, uh, started working here recently, and, and he works down the end of the corridor. And um, I was doing a talk recently, and he sort he sort he'd seen me a few times, and he was like, you know, on a Sunday, you really do look like you know what you're talking about, don't yeah. you? But like nobody gets to see this this bit where you clearly don't have a clue what you're on about. <laughs> <do> you? <laughs> and I was like, you are. That is that's true. So I think it's really important to figure out, could you explain, could you in 20 seconds go, right, this is my structure, this is my main point, and these are the things that I'm going to say under that sort of main driving point, and, and this is the stuff I want people to take away. Can you do that in 30 seconds? Because if you can't, I'd say come away from the content and get back to the, um, to the structure. And then final question, for simplicity, what would be the first thing to go? Um, I think one of the main things that hinders us from simplicity ultimately is that we just try and do too much. And obviously when we've sort of um, uh, you know, done the research and we've laboured over it and we've got it down, we, come, we become a little bit emotionally attached to all the stuff in our talk and we're like, oh that bit's so good and that bit's so good. Um, but I think we have to have that discipline of going, right, I need to cut my clock to fit um, the sermon slot that I've got. And people are going to only be able to take in so much stuff. Um, we have a, a trend I don't know what you do in your setting, it'll be different for diff courses for courses, but we try and aim for about 30 minutes. Um, and, and I looked it up, and my last three were 32, 32, 34. So I'm obviously failing to hit the 30 minute thing. Um, but, but that in itself has been a challenge. Even I, I find it to. to it's, it, I, I don't know how you find it, but I, I find it harder to, to come down to the right time rather than sort of padding it out. You know what I mean? It's always that thing. And there's a discipline to cutting something out. So, what would be the first thing to go? is a good question to ask. It just forces you to choose, I'm gonna make this a realistic amount of content. And if you can't um, sort of make, that, make your mind up about that, ask a couple of people to have a look at your notes. And what I've found is invariably they, they say the same thing, so it makes a decision for you. Is it simple enough? Um, next question that you could ask yourself, I don't know if you can read that, is it engaging? Is it actually engaging? Again, I think one of the reasons why um, the first draft is sometimes feels the worst draft is because it's just dull. It's just dull. Sometimes I do, I do this thing where I, I, do, I write it all out and um, I've got my talk all written out and then I say it into my phone and then I listen to it on the, um, on the way home. And um, one of the sort of most deflating moments is when you realise I've drifted off. I'm, I can't even <laughs> hold my own attention. <laughs> I'm that boring. And again, the, the, you know, the reality is we can have the most profound thing to say, we can have the most brilliant content, but if it's not engaging, it doesn't matter because people aren't going to actually listen to it. They're going to they're gonna drift off. Some of the stuff that I've said in this seminar, brilliant, but you've, some of you have missed it because it was dull <laughs> at that point. And that's just how it is. So we need to, we need to work on making talks engaging. And I think the bad, that's the bad news. The bad news is that it, the reality is it's irrelevant if it's not engaging. But the good news is I think there are some simple things, some simple sort of disciplines that we can do to make our talks more engaging. I don't think you have to be Mike Pilavachi or, or, or Jay Pathak um, to, do, to, to, to be engaging. I think ordinary humans like us can do it as well. Um, and so one thing, one thing that I'd say is um, I think... I had this sort of image in my mind of um, pricking the bubble, pricking the bubble. So what I feel is that when you get onto a stage or you know a situation like this, um, people over time will gradually slip into this um, passive dynamic, where where it's like the audience's job to be passive and to sort of receive what's what's being said, and it's the person on the stage's role to sort of like be active and say something. And what happens is that. That's where people begin to glaze over when they get into that passive place. And I, it's almost like visually this bubble starts to sort of manifest between, between you and the audience. And eventually you're like, well, let's get away. <laughs> and they can't, you know, do you know what I mean? And so I always feel like when you've got a talk 
um, written or your notes or your, or your structure sort of scheduled out, a helpful thing to do is to go is to go through it and go, right, every five minutes, am I pricking the bubble again? Am I, am I pricking that bubble and re-establishing contact? Because if somebody's drifted off, you know, you start telling a story and they're, and they're, and they're backing and they'll pick up some of the other stuff that you have to say. Um, so give people fresh opportunities to re-engage with what you're saying by, by pricking the bubble every few minutes. And so examples of ways that you could do that is that you can, yeah, you can tell a story. The minute you go, there was this one time, people, are, they're back in the room. Um, you can do the thing where you say, I'm, you know, I know I hate it, but you know, put your hand up if you blah, 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 blah. And people have to put their hand up or like turn to the person next to you and say, this is awkward, isn't it? You know, or whatever. <laughs> you can do things like that. Um, I think addressing people directly um, is a way of pricking the bubble. So I think, um, in British culture, um, people generally prefer us to use the, the language of, of we when we're talking, you know, like they don't like somebody standing on stage going, you, 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 do they like it? It's like, we are together in this experience, we, we, we. But I think every now and again to go, some of you are feeling like this. It may be that you currently right now are da 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 da. I think that's a really good way of pricking the bubble. So I think that's something that's helpful to do. And another thing that I just want to talk about really briefly in terms of being engaging, is um, this stuff, this thing, the ancient Greeks had um, three types of um, modes of communication. You know there was this sort of oratory style in ancient Greece where people would you know, talk and debate and things. And they would talk about ethos, pathos, and logos. I don't know if I've pronounced those right, but they would talk about those three things. And, um, and the idea was that effective, persuasive communication will contain all three of these. So ethos is your personal credibility. It's you know it's sort of like um, if, so. If for example, in this context, it would be saying, "Oh, I preach on at Trent Vineyard um, about once a month, and I've been doing it for about ten years, and I've got a role of helping other preachers develop here. That's part of my job. That would be the the full extent of my ethos in this particular situation. Pathos is about emotion. So when we're telling stories, when we're saying things that appeal to people's emotion. It's often the stories and the illustrations that communicate that. And then uh, logos is, is, is the logic. It's the kind of like the, the rational explanation. And so again, when we're preaching, often that is, that is essentially you know, getting the Bible out and, 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 and unpacking, okay, this is what that means. And this is what it meant there and then. And this is what it means here and now. So this is what it might look like to apply that to our life. It's applying that logic. And another thing that, that logos is also doing is it's, it's um, as well as Bible, it's also explaining the reality of the culture that we live in. So, for example, like what Susie did with the, um, with the Dreaming the Impossible thing, she was saying, look, these are the statistics about what's going on with our young people today. This is what medical professionals are saying about the experiences that they're finding with, with young adults and their st state of anxiety. It's using sort of <laughs> tangible, rational data to create a sense of persuasion. So that's what, that's what that one is. And um, there's a really interesting TED talk by this guy. He's called Brian Stevenson. And apparently it got the, the longest standing ovation of any TED talk ever. I think he actually is a Christian, but he, he works as a human rights attorney. Um, and um, he, he did this, he did this um, TED talk. It's all about justice. I don't know if I've got a slide of it. Maybe I didn't get it. No, but you can, if, you, if you type his name into Google... This is the best preacher you'll ever hear outside of the church. It's amazing. It's not a preach, but it is so moving. And it's a brilliant um, sort of 15-minute piece of communication. But I read a book um, called Talk Like Ted. And in that book, um, this guy analysed this talk. And he said, he noted how um, this amazing talk this guy did, it was 65% pathos. It was 65% it, of it was just stories. And then there was... Um, a smidge of ethos, he kind of explained who he was and what his professional background was and what his sort of personal credentials were. And then there was about a quarter of it that was logic. He was, he was you know, this, it, it, was, it was all about justice and he was like talking about statistics around crime and things like that. Now, what I don't want to do for a minute is suggest that this is some kind of like ideal ratio or model. But there is something that we could learn from this, I think, in terms of there's an awful lot of pathos and there's a, a smidge of ethos and there's, a, and there's a good chunk of, of, um, of rational logos in there, but there's so much stories. And when we're talking about engaging, it is the, the appeals to the heart, the appeals to your emotions, the stories that people really 
their brains connect with it and they, and they sync up with you as you're doing that. <coughs> so one thing that we did a little while ago that you might want to do is get a talk, get a manuscript of yours, get three coloured highlighters, go through it and just, um, just highlight what proportions you did in your last talk or the talk that you're currently writing. And you might find, oh yeah, this, it could do with a bit more of this, it could do with a bit more of that. And so that might be one thing, that's just a simple way of, um, of doing that. I think um, if you're looking for um, you know, examples, I think like, yeah, the pathos thing, like the way people like Jay and Mike tell stories is, is brilliant, isn't it? And um, the logos thing, um, you know, we're seeing some great examples of that in terms of this week, aren't we, with Putty and with Derek, that sort of unpacking the scriptures. But um, in terms of that thing of like establishing the cultural picture, um, somebody who I think is amazing at that is John Tyson, the way he kind of, he, he sort of says like, this is what's going on in our culture. Da -da 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 -da. And like, where did he find the time to do all this research? I don't know. Um, so I don't know if that's sort of like achievable the way that he does it, but I just think it's, it's really, really helpful. And it speaks to our culture now who have a deeply, deeply cynical mindset about, about church and about faith. And they want some sort of, you know, some explanation of why we believe what we believe. So I think he's doing a really good job with that. So I think that, that little thing can help our talks become more engaging. And then finally, um, final question. When you've asked all of these things, when you've said, why am I doing this? You've asked yourself, am I actually in step with God? When you've asked yourself, am I actually saying what he is really saying? You know, what the Bible is actually saying. When we've challenged ourselves about whether our talk is simple enough, and we've looked through it and tried to ensure that it is adequately engaging. Final question, I would, and I, I personally, it, here, what, what the last sort of few years we've done this increasingly where when we're writing talks, we share our notes in the build-up with a couple of others in the team and we, and we always ask for the opinions of others about our content and ask, you know, what question, what do you think? And I think ultimately, if you've done all those things, that's a brilliant question to ask. To ask somebody else, what do you think about this? Um, really just simple, quick example of how beneficial that can be. Um, I think this was a couple of years ago, but I'd, I, I'll, this period here had been like a, a two-week process with this talk. I was, I was writing a talk and it wasn't coming together and I was in the pit of, of despair where like the fifth draft was the worst draft and it was not coming together. But I'd read the commentaries and I'd you know, done all the research, I'd prayed, I'd you know, really sort of taken it seriously, but this talk was just not coming together. And I showed it to um, Susie, who works here, and I said, oh mate, this talk is, what is the problem? Like, it's just not, I think I'm gonna have to start again. Um, and it was, you know, a couple of days out. And um, she read through it, 20 minutes to read through it, and then she said, mate, I think, I think your content is good, actually. I think the problem's your structure. And she said, I think, it was a three-point talk, and she said, I think um, your third point is actually your first point, and your second point is your last point, or, you know, something like that. And literally, it, within a space of 10 minutes, it was just cut, copy and paste, bit of smoothing it around, and suddenly it just like clunk, 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 just, just fell into place. And we can't explain how, how much it transformed that talk. It was really, I was really happy with it by the end of it. And, um, and, and, and that was a blind spot. I, was, I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I was so involved in the process and I was so stressed about, you know, I'm gonna do a disastrous uh, talk and everyone's gonna think it's absolutely rubbish. I was all insecure about it. And that moment just completely resolved it, just asking somebody else and being vulnerable enough to kind of go, what do you think, because I'm not sure. So, I, I, every, well, before that, we were, we were doing that, but every talk I do, I always share them, and we try and share them with one another. And some of the advantages of it is it's a great way of gathering extra stories, um, because obviously you've got your bank of stories that you are aware of, but if you get a couple of other people to read it, they'll have more ideas. It's a great way of discipling others who are developing as communicators. Um, so, you know, if you've got somebody <coughs> who, you know, who's on, who's maybe they're not, you know, they're not currently preaching, but they, they really could, get them to go on, 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 on that journey with you. It is so helpful for them, um, and, it's, and, and, and they create, you know, it creates a sense of ownership, but it's a really good discipleship opportunity, particularly with that thing of trying to understand, am I saying what the Bible's actually saying? You know, if you go on that journey together, it can be really helpful for that. It's a great way of, of widening out the audience, so if you share the talk with people who are in different sort of demographic groups to you, you know, when you get to the point of application, they might say, oh, you know, this, as, as, as a single woman, I would say this or that or the other, or as a, as a millennial, I would say this or that or the other. So it's a really helpful way of, of widening your audience. 
it's a really helpful way of avoiding blushes personally you know sometimes you know we like to be real and vulnerable in our talks but sometimes you might be planning to say something that actually a couple of weeks later you'd, you'd regret it's just too raw or too vulnerable and i can think of a few times where friends here have said to me mate i don't are you sure you want to say once the toothpaste is out of the tube are you sure you want to say that and i've gone oh yeah actually thank you or you know if you've got a joke in there it's just a little bit edgy they might they might go actually you know why take it out so it's really helpful in that regard it's a really helpful way of being encouraged you know if you want to if you do actually want this line to end up above here um, it's great to, to be encouraged by brothers and sisters who are like mate this is going to be great and one of the things that I think we find ourselves saying often one to one another when we're looking at one another's talks is um, you know at a particular point we'll, we'll, we'll scribble on it mate you should go much bigger there like that, that, that there's power in that at that point and and I think at that point you should go 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 bigger, go bigger. And we often write that on one another's talks, and we sort of spur one another on and encourage one another. Um, it's a great way, as I've said before, of simplifying because people say I'd lose that bit, I'd scrap that bit. Um, and the final thing I'd say about it is that feedback that you get before the talk, it's um, it's so much easier to give sort of critical feedback before the event than after the event. You know, so because you're actually doing somebody a super favour, and the whole the whole church benefits from that as well. So I, I'm a massive advocate of, of, I know it takes time, but that discipline of, um, of getting together and, and going through your notes before, before. So those are my suggestions. Those, those questions, hopefully, they'll help you sort of navigate through that process. And um, yeah, I hope that's, been, hope that's been really, really helpful. I hope, I've, because I've tried to cram loads of stuff in there, hopefully it hasn't come across as though I'm sort of like, feel like I know everything about it. Um, but uh, those, all those things are, have been really profoundly useful to me, and I think others here find find those questions helpful when we're in, when we're in the midst of, of preparing for the talk. So, bless you. Um, let's just pray that we'll all be more effective and um, more empowered. So, Holy Spirit, shall we, shall we come? Let's do that.